Hello, and welcome to this third episode in the Lenten series, Witnesses, on the First Lutheran Podcast. My name is Jody Hoyt, and I'm the Communications Director at First Lutheran here in Sioux Falls. Today, Pastor Jeff Backer and Seminarian and Youth and Family Coordinator Mark Nason will discuss the week's topic, The Humbled. So welcome to you both. Thanks for having us again, Jody. It's good to be here. Pleasure to be here. This week's reading comes from Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments, he said. To him, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, He went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For for mortals it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Thus ends the reading. With verse 16 and 17, looking at the humility out of, uh, out of our good deeds. And the rich man, the rich young man, I should say, he, he t- calls Jesus a teacher. And looking at that, what, uh, what do you think his views are on just what he needs to do? And where do you see his humility, humility at? Well, I think... Um, if we take this text, we have to really understand that the the rich young man uh, is a Jew, uh, and all of his life he's been told that his worth, his identity, his position and stature in the world is all based on his ability uh, to do things or to not do things. This was all against the law of Moses. So. Um, which actually easily we get caught up in this as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the rich young man uh, comes to Jesus. One, he says, teacher, this is an interesting thing to begin with because uh, he comes with the idea that there is more to do. Yes, like a, a teacher giving a student assignments. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, and he actually ends up asking this question uh, eventually in the text, but... You know, to begin with, he says, you know, I'm a good Jew. I've, I've done all these things since I was a, a young boy. I was taught right. Um, so where is my assurance that I have eternal life? Uh, and, of course, Jesus will start to press into this idea of what it means to be humble, first of all, um, but also to press against that you will not find your righteousness in your ability to do things or to uh, perform against the law. And so uh, this is exactly what he starts to strip away uh, from this young rich man, is this um, piety of having performed the law perfectly. And the, thir- the first thing he does is actually points to the fact he hasn't yes, because he's rich. 
And, and maybe a good place to start would be just kind of like a working definition of humble and humility. Obviously, that is the, the theme this week that you uh, will be preaching on. Yeah, I think I think where we struggle, and, and kind of as I was thinking about what it means to be humbled uh, or to be humble, uh, certainly brings us a couple different ideas anyway. Um, there are people that we know in life that really live life out of um, maybe we would say the the cuff the cup half full mentality all the time that that there are so many blessings beyond their deserving it you know and their their whole demeanor or their whole posture in life is uh, sharing and lifting up others and caring for others and and all of those things I mean when we hear about uh, someone who's humble we immediately think of Mother Teresa as yes. an example. You know, where she gave up her entire life for the poor of Calcutta. Um, and, of course, we want to think that we can also make ourselves humble like that in some ways. As a striving example is often how it's used. Right, or false humility. Uh, even the disciples in this text, Jesus has to deal with this with the disciples because they kind of take on this posture. Well, look what we have given up to follow you. So we should have some better status, you know, uh, in heaven or with uh, my uh, reward for eternal life or something. And he goes, no, no, this is, you're, you're missing the point again. And that's something that they also just, is an issue that comes up throughout the, the Gospels. Yeah, the disciples never actually get it. I mean, it is, they bring the greatest example for us of how not to be disciples. I mean, this is what we actually learn. But this is what the, a disciple yeah, is. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> but the other thing I was thinking about is, um, moments in life when you are humbled. And what I was thinking about was, um, you know, we do visits in the hospital every week. And when you encounter someone who's just gotten a stage four cancer diagnosis, everything that the world says gives them power and status, stature, identity, has now been completely stripped away in a moment. Uh, and I often find that those are moments where you see what I call true humility come to bear because all of those things that you cling to for life no longer mean anything. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about was the birth of my oldest son and being in a, in a room where you saw you saw Genesis 2 happen right before your eyes, and you can't help but kind of be shocked into a state of humility because of the power of what was happening there. Um, and, and to understand that, my son, when my son was born, he was born blue and um, had a low APGAR score. And within just moments, you saw the breath of life come into him, and you saw his body literally come to life right before your eyes. And I, and I just think about, you can't, I mean, you stand there in absolute awe. That's what it is. That's what it means to be humble. And, it was made, and he was made good. Is Well, by God's doing. Yes. Right? Not by, I mean, certainly there were doctors and nurses and, and everybody there doing this, but uh, it was the breath of life that gave him life, not everything else that was going on. Um, and of course, to understand or to, to remember that perspective is is really awe-inspiring. And I think that that's, and I don't want to get 
I don't want to get into um, a mindset that, you know, you have to have something completely awe-inspiring for you to be humbled. But what I'm saying is um, a lot of times we find ourselves in false humility of saying, well, I can choose to give up Starbucks for a month and uh, that makes me better somehow. Yeah, and, and kind of looking at uh, what it means to be good. Often we associate that with the the good life as I believe that's the state of Nebraska's motto. But just looking at the possessions and, and things, that's often what we equate at being good or just certain experiences that we have or, or don't. Yeah, it's kind of the whole uh, struggle with the de- definition of success. Is it a is it a monetary stature? Uh, I can tell you, ninety two thousand uh, dollars per year is what the average person equates to having success in the United States. Ninety two thousand? Yes, ninety two thousand. But what is it? What is your statistic again for uh, to be in the top one percent earners in the world? Thirty two thousand four hundred. Well, that is quite a challenge for us, then, isn't it? Yes. That uh, our our status or what we believe our status at minimum is three times the world standard, right? Well, I digress. Uh, no. Yeah. What is it to be good? It's, I think often it's equated to life and, and kind of going back to the good life and, and seeing fortune throughout. And maybe you could speak to some of that when, uh, meeting with a family that's just recently lost a loved one and looking back at what their what their life was and what their family saw as success or the happiest times and and maybe equating good and happiness is where you often see that being portrayed at yeah I think that's one part of it. I think you bring up something really good there because um, this is even where we struggle in those times of life transitions and a funeral is one of them where we want to sanctify the person and how they live their life. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't hear family stories saying, well, they earned, you know, six figures and had a Corvette and three homes. And no, it becomes uh, they were a good family person. They were fun-loving. They were this, that, or the other. Um, and, and it's, again, trying to grasp to that, wanting to identify that person as having been good. Um, in the world standard of that, and of course our spiritual understanding of that is two very different things, because um, if if we step back from that, we understand that we are made good uh, by Christ. It is not anything that we can do to do that, or to attain that, or earn that, or choose that. Uh, but you are declared it. Um, I when we were talking a little bit about this. Um, and thinking about this kind of humbled uh, idea around this text for today, um, you know, whenever whenever Christ tells you something, it's always uh, a declarative. And we heard this, you know, we hear this in the creation story as an example. Each each day of creation, God does what He does, uh, and at the end of the day, He calls it good, right? Um, but good isn't good enough for us. We need to be awesome or excellent or better than good. Right, but good for us is uh, being forgiven, and that's declared on you. It's not again something you can earn. It's not something that you can um, find merit out of something you've done. Which is this is what the rich man is doing. He's is he saying, "Here is my merits. 
uh, I think you had had talked a little bit about um, that he he wants his good works to be his currency. Yes. So you know when he stands before Saint Peter, as we always have this this little allusion to that, you know you can bring your scorecard to Saint Peter and say, look what I have done, right? Uh, I have the currency to get into heaven. Yes, here's all the the things I've done over my lifetime. I've deposited into the good deeds bank, and this is this have, is where I'm at. I have built my heavenly treasure. Please let me spend it, right? But the reality of it is that is not what makes you good. It is always Christ's word for you. It is forgiven. And with that comes new life. And that's exactly what this text is about. It's what, it's what Christ is actually dealing with a little bit here is this whole eternal life question too, uh, what that means. But you are made good because you are declared good. And that happens by faith. Uh, and this is the, uh, I alluded to this just a little bit earlier. Um, the rich man, after having said, you know, here is all the, the commands that Moses gave us, and I have done this since I was a youth, what more do I need? He says, what do I lack? Yes. As if there's one more thing. As if, as if it's a possession that he could own. Correct. Uh, and what does Christ tell him? Well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. Well, you start to work there a little bit backwards in your own thinking too, going, well, he can't sell everything because then he has nothing. And, uh, We're he, trying to rationalize. Yeah, and, he had, and that's certain death. To have nothing means that I am now the same as a beggar mm-hmm. or I am you know, the same as um, the people that get looked down on uh, in our culture. Uh, and that isn't possible. I'm not going to do that. Right. No, and that's not how how God operates right. in our life. But we so much want to put God in a box and have whatever actions happen in our life kind of rationalize it and, and use a scientific thinking into looking at you know how do we get from point A to point B? What's what's the bigger picture? Sure. Well, we like to we like to um, obviously again rationalize or justify ourselves against the law. Um, a sinner is always looking to take and replace uh, the creator with creation. Now, what I mean by that, again, is we don't take God at his word, so we say, I need a 401k to know that I have the means to do this, that, or the other as I go through life. Right? And, and even looking at once a person has died, all their possessions often end up leading to such great fights within families and what do you do to honor the person? Yeah. Where, who gets what? How do we dispose of all the means? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing because um, it, it, it stems from the curse of the Garden of Eden. So original sin. Uh, it, is, it is the little element within our sinfulness that still clings to that there's hope that uh, we'll still have a place in the garden someday, right? And, and uh, this is what the man is, is certainly resting on yeah. that with his own ability, that he, he does not have faith. He is, he is lacking in that, and he still believes that it is his own doing. Yeah. Well, whenever you, whenever you take and want to justify yourself under the law, there's two ways you do that. Through science, which is reason, right? Or through morality, how you've lived your life. Do, did you treat others with the golden rule? That type of thing. So that you can go and say, look what I have done. Yeah, the thing, the thing that Jesus doesn't say 
but there is an allusion to is the thing you lack is a promise. And the promise is that you are good because I have made you good, right? And of course, Luther then takes that to the next level and says the, the good tree bears good fruit and, and all of those things. And that your fruit is not uh, your justification under the law. Your fruit comes because they are fruits of faith. They're proof, not proof, but they are, um, they are the effects of living out of your faith. And, and Christ doesn't give him promise. Yeah. He, he talks about the promise, but he doesn't give it. He doesn't him. actually give it. Yeah, this uh, and this actually, there's an interesting thing because uh, as you were putting together some of your thinking around this topic, um, this particular text occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. We can find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And almost verbatim in the three Synoptics, which, you know, can kind of tell us that this is an important story. There's something to be, to be gained here, right, or learned from this. Uh, but an interesting, interesting thing about the Gospel of Mark, which is kind of a, a something that's not really well known, is that after this story occurs in Mark, which is actually uh, in Mark chapter ten, uh, in chapter fourteen, at the time of Jesus' arrest, uh, it is believed that there is a reference to the rich young man again, and that comes from chapter. 14 verses 51 to 52. It's a very obscure story, just kind of plopped right in. It's plopped into the middle of, and you kind of go, what is that about? But it's right at the end of the text about Jesus' betrayal and his arrest. And it says, a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. And it's, it's believed that this is the young, the rich young man having done what Christ told him to do and his last bit of humility is stripped from him in that he even loses the linen cloth. And now uh, he has nothing but to cling to God and to God's promises and to God's provision, right? So there's an interesting thing that happens there in the Gospel of Mark that we don't hear in the uh, a, a nakedness and humility is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the idea of having the dream where you're in front of the stage and you're in your underwear and, you know, just being embarrassed. Well, and I was thinking of it a different way. You come into the world buck naked and you're going to go out of the world buck naked. Yes. There's nothing you do in this life that does anything for you beyond the grave, right? Uh, except one. And that's clinging to a promise, and that comes in Christ. Uh, looking at uh, verse 24, uh, you had talked about, a little bit about an interesting idea with uh, the camel going through the eye of the needle. That's a, a pretty famous verse and quoted, I mean, kind of throughout as you know, an exaggeration. What, uh, what can you tell me about your experience in Jerusalem? Yeah, when I was in Jerusalem a couple years ago, this text took on a whole different meaning for me uh, in context. Uh, the, the, um, in the city wall, the original city wall of Jerusalem uh, that would have existed in the time of Christ, there was what was called a robber's gate. Um, 
so each night the the old city primary gates would be closed. These were the gates that would allow trade and people to come in freely in the course of a day. But at night, those would be closed and locked to protect the city. But there was a robber's gate that was uh, not very well known. It was a small access through the gate, and it was called the Eye of the Needle. And um, our professor, when we were there at the time, of course, took this text and said, okay, there's, there's some feeling here that this might have a, a, some reference to trying to weave a camel through this robber's gate in order to gain access, uh, which is an interesting uh, concept when you understand how Christ is using this here in that um, people want to use their righteousness to try and gain access to heaven. So they're going to use, not St. Peter's Gate, but they're going to use this a side door, side door, right, to get through because they have earned it somehow, right? Um, I just think it's it's an interesting context thing. I, I I mean, there's many different ways we could go with that, and yeah, also with a camel were, being the largest animal yeah, that would have been known to right, right. To well, there were elephants. Uh, the Nabataeans brought elephants into the Middle East, but mm. but the camel was the most common. Uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of all conjecture. I mean, as to what he's dealing with there. I think there's a, there is another um, thing in this text that we struggle with. And um, what does it mean to have eternal life? And what does that mean for us today versus... Um, and I think this is something that uh, that we, we kind of... Well, like I said, we struggle with it a little bit because we, it seems that we often take eternal life as a, as a quantity of time. Um, I heard it once said that uh, to put a definition on eternity is... Um, that there's this diamond floating in space the size of Earth, and every 10,000 years an eagle comes by and brushes its wing on the diamond. And when that diamond ceases to exist, that will be the end of eternity. Of course. Well, and also we've had like the doomsday clock with nuclear weapons coming yeah. out of the, the 50s. and Right, right. But uh, eternal life actually is, again, it's not a reference to time, it's a reference to existence. That, um, you know, the gospel word and, and Christ's promises function for you when you hear them and trust in them. Um, so, you know, I, I think about we do confession and absolution at every worship service, right? Um, but do you really walk away with kind of this renewed sense of being freed from what plagues you? Um, from your sins. And right? some would say, no, I'm just repeating the words that I've heard since right. I was born. We, we do this we by rote. Robotic. And yeah, and, and it doesn't mean anything. Um, but when you actually, and this is why I say, there are moments in life when we get awe-inspired that I think are these times when we, when faith really clings to what uh, Christ has told you. The promise that's given to us. Absolutely. Um, and those are the moments where eternal life exists right now. Not in some, when you've taken your last breath in this life and you'll wake up in the next you know, life when Christ calls you from the grave type of a thing. Eternal life starts for you whenever you trust by faith. In you what mean Christ it's not an all-dogs-go-to-heaven scenario? Yeah, where... not an all-dogs-go-to-heaven scenario. Um, you know, we get, we get this understanding. I'm not making this up. I mean, we get this understanding from the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 36, whomever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's a declared. Uh, and then a little bit later on, which is actually a text that we, uh, uh, the end of a text we use a lot for sermons is John 17, 
now this is eternal life. It gives us a definition that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is, that is the gospel or the scripture reference to what the definition of eternal life is, is to know that God is for you now, here, and today. Um, and that's the thing that this uh, rich man doesn't have. To know God is for you is to be humbled, to know that you have no way of gaining his favor. If you had a way to gain his favor, why did Christ have to go to the cross? It's to understand that God is the one doing the acting in this and that we are being acted upon uh, in this uh, scenario. And, and you kind of hear that at the end of verse 25 when the disciples are asking then, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, for mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Yeah, and you referenced this a little bit earlier. Um, we love to put God in a box of our own understanding. Uh, this is exactly how Mark sixteen sixteen is treated, which is the those that believe and are baptized will be saved. Making it a, a two-step process. Well, or making it a plus. law again mm-hmm. is what it is. Um, but this is exactly that point. It, it, is, it is a confession in faith that actually saves you. It isn't your doing it. Uh, it isn't a do this then. Again, Christ never operates in if-thens. That is always Satan doing that. Christ always says, it is and you are. That is how he always comes to you. And um, it is, again, not trying to put God in that box of saying, okay, I can take you this way. This is the way I understand you. It's the way I'll allow you to be in my life. I'm sorry to tell you, God is bigger than that box you want to put him in, far beyond the box you want to put him in. God is beyond his own law as well. But what you know is what God tells you. The promises that are given. The promise that is given. And that comes in baptism, and we cling to it throughout our lives. It comes in the sacrament of taking Christ's body and blood, where we say, this is for you, for the forgiveness of sin, so that you hear this again, that it is specifically for you. Um, These are the moments when true reality of understanding who God is happen. And that is eternal life, when you say, amen, amen because you can't say anything else. That is what it means to be humbled, is to know that the only thing you can say is amen, which Luther says is, let it be so. Yes, yes. And that's a that's a great spot to end at. Just do you want to give a, a recap maybe of some of the, the subjects that we talked about today? You know, um, again, this text really, when we hear this, it gets us spinning and operating in the thought of what do I have to do? Um, and, and the promise, again, is reiterated here, um, that while you are called through faith to be in this world and to love your neighbor and uh, do all of these things, these are not the things that will actually uh, save you. They are the gifts of faith. But it is, it is understanding that you have been given a promise, a promise that came in your baptism again, a promise that we renew every time that we come to the sacraments, where we, we receive God's grace and his mercy over again, um, and what it means to be humbled by that. Uh, to actually cling to things by faith is to find yourself in a place of humility, uh, knowing that there's nothing you can do except trust in it. Uh, and that's really a wonderful place to find yourself. So I think that's the, the simple answer to what you've just asked. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Jeff. Pastor Jeff.
Well, thank you for joining us in our Lenten series, Witnesses, on the First Lutheran Podcast. Be sure to join us next week as Pastor Lars Olson and seminarian and Karen Health Coordinator Jordan Stone discuss the week's topic, The Children. We'll see you next time.